So I think it's really important to present to our kids the possibility, not pressure, but the possibility that we can grow through adversity, not to erase what they went through or try to kind of stuff it away and say they should forget about it. No, like we'll talk about it, talk about what, what was given up and talk about how did you develop? What do, what can you do that you might not have been able to do because we have this time at home? What do you remember about the time? What do you miss about it maybe? And then what are your goals going forward? Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. Summer is coming to a close and students are getting ready to head back into the classrooms once again. But this year, we'll start out differently. COVID precautions like masks and school PCR surveillance testing and daily health screeners are no longer required. To many New Yorkers, it seems like things are back to normal. But are they really? Since March of 2020, students, parents, teachers, and administrators have dealt with more uncertainty and disruption than ever before. This has led to learning loss and mental health struggles that we'll be dealing with for years to come. Today, Epicenter's Mitra Kalida speaks with NPR education reporter Anya Kamenitz about her new book, The Stolen Year. The Stolen Year asks the questions how COVID changed children's lives and where we go now. Let's just begin by zooming out. Could you tell me why you wrote The Stolen Year? Yeah. So when um, when school shut down in the middle of March 2020 here in New York City and all over the country, I was here in my kitchen. I had my two girls, full-time job. My husband has, has his full-time job. We had our downstairs neighbor, thankfully, who agreed to join our bubble, um, which is the answer to the question of how I was able to write The Stolen Year. But I, uh, I knew based on my experience that school closures were going to be a really big deal. And the reason that I knew that was because I had been in New Orleans shortly after Katrina. I had reported on the kids that were displaced from their schools there. And the fact that schools in the city did not open up again for a few months, although the kids themselves enrolled elsewhere after just a few weeks. But I had reported on the long-term trajectories of that displacement and the all the social and emotional as well as you know basic needs fallout from that. I also had a longstanding interest in education in the developing world. You know, we've had this incredible international push to get kids into formal education, to get girls into education all over the world. And there's been this developing field of education in emergencies that has to do with schooling in conflict zones, schooling in natural disasters. And so those are the people that I called up right away and said, what happens when school shuts down? What should we be looking for when kids are not having access to formal school? You know, one of the things that was so striking during COVID was in those early months, there was so much comparison. So you remember on social, there would be, here's how Korea's handling it. And here's how Japan is handling it. I just wonder what you, what you made of those comparisons. Was there a country that when it came to education, got it right? I mean, this really is the heart of the question because how America sees itself and how we actually show up in the world are two very different things. We have this big, supposedly such so wealthy country, and yet there's no welfare state for children. There's no tax credit, no paid leave, no childcare subsidies. And we do feed kids. We feed them at school. That's where we feed them. So when school shut down, we had millions, tens of millions of poor kids, kids in poverty. And those are the kids that were immediately affected right away. And why do I say that? Because we reacted to the pandemic more like Brazil and more like India, especially when it came to kids. There was a real breakdown 
down. Schools were closed, you know, for over a year for a lot of kids and sort of a haphazard effect of mitigation. Who should we be like? Well, I mean, obviously you could compare us to countries that did a good job stopping the pandemic. There was no school reopening debate in New Zealand because they reopened schools after nine weeks because they had no cases, right? They didn't have a controversy about that. Canada also reopened schools for the most part in fall 2020, with the exception, I believe, of Ontario. And they had such a robust set of social services in place. It's not that they didn't have debates. They did have debates, but they didn't have the polarization that we did. And they had enough social services to where school shutdown wasn't the humanitarian problem that it was in the United States. And then, of course, in the book, I also compare us to Europe because Europe went through big waves of COVID, wave after wave. But after the first spring, they were very clear, the European equivalent of the CDC and the World Health Organization were very clear, increasingly clear that schools needed to be open, nursery schools needed to be open. And when need be, including in the fall 2020, they would shut other things down. They'd shut down dining. And that's a thing that we never did. That's right. And that became pretty controversial, specifically in New York City. One of the reasons we launched the Unmuted as a newsletter was because it was two weeks before school was supposed to start. And truly, parents did not know whether school was going to start. I mean, that was kind of our entry to this issue. How do you think New York City fared? And, you know, I've I've covered um, New York City schools as well and, and feel like there is something of how we set policy for the rest of the country. Did you feel that with COVID? I think if you look at big cities and especially blue cities, New York stood out for its vocal commitment to keeping kids in school more so than LA, Chicago, and the other top 10. I mean, the, the you know, obviously Texas and Florida were a totally different situation politically. But in terms of a blue state, we did try to open schools. We talked a lot about opening schools and it was really, really hard. I mean, I think it shows how hard exactly that it was because the way that we ended up opening to my, as I recall, delaying the start of school twice and having such such an embattled debate between union leaders and various factions within the unions, as well as parents and different parent groups, when all was said and done, we had about a third of kids coming into school in person and the other two thirds electing to stay home. And that was not a decision that was made based on the need. It was made based on parent perceptions of safety. And you could also say how safety mitigation practices were observed in different types of schools. So you can think about school buildings that didn't have any green space of their own, that were trying to close streets in order to give kids a place to sit school buildings that might have been overcrowded before COVID versus ones that had plenty of space. So really the the inequities that we see in a big urban system all the time really being exacerbated. And, And teachers were kind of tearing their hair out because they're like, I was told to come back to the classroom. I'm in the classroom teaching one third of my kids. And then I have to go home and help the other two thirds of the kids who often are the ones that need the most help in the first place. So this is this is not making sense in any kind of way. I was going to ask you about those inequities. Was it worse for immigrant children? Was it worse for special needs children? I know you talk about them as well. Who really felt the brunt of this? Oh my gosh. I mean, that's that's such a hard question to answer because everyone's experiences are so unique, right? Um, but I, I did really try hard to call out, you know, certain kids that we don't necessarily think as much about. So um, special education kids, um, it's about a 14% of all students in the system. And across the board, whether you're talking about ADHD diagnosis or whether you're talking about a kid who's nonverbal, what I heard from parents was that it was very, very hard 
for them to engage with their learning, that they weren't getting the services that they needed. And then I also worry a lot about the kids who never got the interventions at all. One of the mothers in my book who I spent time with was living in St. Louis, has eight children. One of her children was diagnosed autistic during the pandemic um, at the age of like one and a half, two. But there was no thought of getting this kid, uh, this daughter, like uh Inter- interventions. You know, it just wasn't a thing in her world. And she didn't have a way to connect to those services, even though at a certain point she had um, a Department of Social Services, like child welfare case on her, but they weren't necessarily helping her with that or anything else she needed. I also spend a whole chapter talking about kids that are really um, unseen in the margins. So we have 400,000 kids in this country that are in a foster care system. We have about 40,000 kids who are in the justice, criminal justice system. And those two groups, what they both had in common was many times they didn't see their families in person for over one year. Um, that was something that people talked to me as being really devastating. Wow. What about by grade levels? Is there one grade or a set of grades that seem particularly like their learning experience was stolen from them? Oh, gosh. I mean, again, it really varies across individuals. And I think there's really serious concerns across the developmental spectrum. Um, What research would show is that we would be really concerned about kids who were teenagers because that's the time when they are in danger of separating from school altogether. And so what the research predicts and what we actually are seeing happening is kids drifting into paid work and drifting into sometimes caregiving for younger siblings. And that is contributing to academic lower performance, not graduating and dropping out or not going to college. And the college going rates have had an incredible precipitous drop in the last two years. Um, and in particularly on the college, uh, the community college side of things and community college freshmen. So that really is kids being at a crossroads in their lives and not taking the next step into education. And everybody, if you're an employer, you know, don't have to be a parent, it should be very concerned about that. And then the other side of things that we really are worried about is we're worried about the zero to five. We're worried about those early developmental years where socialization is so important, where pre-K, you know, we've been through a decade and a half of hype about why pre-K is so important, school readiness is so important, how we can level the playing field through universal pre-K. Well, pre-K and kindergarten were the largest drops in enrollment over the last two years because parents, first of all, it's not compulsory to send your kid to pre-K or kindergarten in most states. And parents are like, Zoom kindergarten is not a thing. Like, why should I do this or bother with this versus keeping my kids home for another year? Well, those kids are now not ready. They may have missed assessments that would have gotten them into early intervention and being having specialized services. And now people can't tell, ooh, am I seeing a general delay across the population? Or is this kid like really need help ASAP or they're going to be behind for a long time? Yeah. I mean, New York City is um, on what you're describing in terms of separating from education. You know, its bigness can be a real advantage, but also it means that you slip through the cracks, right? And so um, I could totally see that being an issue. We pride ourselves on being actionable. So I'm just wondering, as we're in this back to school season, what is your advice for parents to compensate for the stolen year? And also, how should we approach this year knowing what we've just been through? Love these questions. So with our kids, I have a piece coming out in the New York Times about post-traumatic growth. So I think it's really important to present to our kids the possibility, not pressure, but the possibility that we can grow through adversity, not to erase what they went through or try to kind of stuff it away and say they should forget about it. No, like we'll talk about it, talk about what what was given up and talk about 
how did you develop? What do, what can you do like that you might not have been able to do because we have this time at home? What do you remember about the time? What do you miss about it maybe? And then what are your goals going forward? I think a lot of kids are going to have, yes, academic goals, but also social goals. And I think a lot of schools, hopefully in community groups, I know my daughter's summer camp, really engaging in helping kids develop those social skills. And so things we might not think about so much for older kids, you know, we're, we're used to kind of having a light touch and letting them navigate their peer relationships, I think, hopefully, but now they might need a little bit more thoughtfulness about, well, how do you structure playdates or can we create an activity that kids can do where they can get to know other kids? And then what are the social and emotional learning approaches that either the school is taking or various extracurricular settings are taking because kids really need help. I see my kids and the kids around them struggling to navigate basic developmental things about communication, resolving conflicts. When do you text someone versus talking to them face-to-face? So these are all things that that our kids might have on our minds, but we can start by just asking them what's on their minds, what their goals are, and, and listening to what they want. As we enter a new school year, it's important not to treat it as just another school year. Acknowledging the challenges that students and educators face and talking about them is a key step to moving forward. Getting back into routines will also be important. If you're a parent, don't just set academic goals. Set social goals too. Help structure playdate activities. And perhaps most importantly, check in on social and emotional well-being. Ask kids what's on their mind, early and often. To read The Stolen Year, you can order it online at www.aniacaminets.net. We've also added the link in our show notes. And for regular updates on education in New York City, sign up for our sister newsletter, The Unmuted. You can also find that linked in our show notes. Before we go, our new weekly update on monkeypox in New York City. Make sure to tune in for the latest information on vaccines, testing, care options, and much more. Hi, I'm Sam Zacker. Last fall, I interned with Epicenter NYC, and now I'm back to share news and information on the spread of the monkeypox virus in New York City. I'll be here every week to focus on how you can keep yourself and your neighbors safe and healthy. Today, a quick overview. What exactly is monkeypox? What are the symptoms? And what should you do if you're experiencing some of these symptoms? Monkeypox is a contagious disease caused by the monkeypox virus. In the current outbreak, the virus is spreading mainly during oral, anal, and vaginal sex and other intimate contact. Monkeypox is not considered a sexually transmitted disease, though experts are currently studying whether the virus can also spread through body fluids. The virus can also be transmitted through contact with a rash or sores of someone who already has the virus, contact with clothing, bedding, towels, or other items they may have used, or through prolonged face-to-face contact. And while we know that monkeypox spreads when people have symptoms, experts are still studying whether it also spreads before symptoms start or after they end. So what are the symptoms to look out for? The most common symptom is a rash or sores that may look like pimples or blisters, which can be extremely itchy and painful. Some other symptoms are swollen lymph nodes, a sore throat, a cough, fever or chills, and sweats. But not everyone experiences all of these at once. Some may just have flu-like symptoms, while others may just have the telltale signs. If you think you might have monkeypox, the first thing we want to share is that you've done nothing wrong in getting it and do not deserve any shame or stigma. You are not alone. A lot of people are going through this. 
And the experience might be awful right now, but it is temporary. You'll be on the other side soon. The recommended first step if you've been exposed is to quarantine. Then, get in touch with a medical provider to be examined and tested as soon as possible. If you do not have a healthcare provider, call 311. You will also need to notify anyone who could have been exposed in the time you unknowingly had it. Looking back, about one week is useful. Eligible New Yorkers who may have been recently exposed to monkeypox can get the Genios vaccine. Getting vaccinated after a recent exposure may reduce the chance of you getting monkeypox, and it can reduce symptoms if you do get it. If you need help finding a vaccine, reach out to us directly at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com or call 917-818-2690. For more details on symptoms and ways to stay safe, make sure to visit the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene website. We've linked to it in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Join us weekly for more news and information on monkeypox in New York City. Keep in mind that things are changing very quickly. So if you have any specific questions or, again, need help finding a vaccine, reach out to us directly at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com or call 917 8812690 8812690 For more ways to get involved in your community visit us at epicenter-nyc.com That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our podcast description.